Well, today we're going to begin a new chapter, Romans chapter 7, in our study of the book of Romans, and we are going to look at the first six verses, so I invite you to give your attention to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. May God bless his word to us today. Well, as you can see from the first couple of words in the, the passage here, we're jumping into the middle of a case or an argument that Paul is making here in this letter to the Romans. It starts off with, or do you not know, brothers? Paul begins the letter, if we go back a little further, back to the beginning of the letter, Paul begins this letter to the Romans by demonstrating that everyone is a sinner and has fallen short of God's glory. Then beginning in the middle of chapter 3, Paul introduces the good news that sinners can be saved through Jesus Christ. These sinful people that he's just condemned can be saved through Christ, and he develops that all the way through chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, Paul begins discussing sanctification, which means the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God and, and are enabled to die to sin and live to righteousness. He's making us more holy. He's making us more like Christ in our lives. And that's a process that begins when we put our faith in Jesus. And it lasts a lifetime until we go to be with the Lord. Now here in chapter 6, Paul makes the statement that believers are not under law, but under grace. Not under law, but under grace. And in chapter 7, Paul begins to expound on what that means. What does it mean that we are not under law, but we're under grace? And much can be learned, and hopefully we will in the coming month or so, learn a lot about the Christian's relationship with the law, because it's a question that... Maybe you're not, you know, waking up in the morning and going, what's my relationship to the law today? You, you probably aren't even thinking that when you get up in the morning or even as you live your life from day to day. But it is something that is underlying the way that we live our lives, that question of God's law and our relationship to it. And inwardly, we're constantly wrestling with that. So what Paul says here is very important to the daily living out of the Christian life. A lot here that will encourage us in, in getting a handle on that. 
Now already in, the, in, chap, in, the, in Paul's writings here, he's told us that the knowledge of God and the truth is universal, way back in chapter 1. But that knowledge of God that every human being has is universally suppressed by unrighteousness. We don't want there to be a God. We would rather go our own way and be our own God. It's the same sin that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. People know there's a God, but they push that knowledge away. People also know God's law. Go look at, well, there's a lot of places that you can see lists of this manner, but one place that I've seen it uh, is C.S. Lewis's little booklet, The Abolition of Man. In the back, he, he uh, provides a list of authors from different civilizations, different countries, different time periods, and he's demonstrating how the basic moral law, you know, you shouldn't murder, etc., those types of things, you shouldn't commit adultery. Cultures and civilizations throughout all of history hold to those things universally. Why is that? It's because God's law is written on our hearts. No one has to prove to us that murder is wrong. We know it's wrong. It's because it's written upon our hearts. Now in this letter to the Romans, and in actually in most of the New Testament letters, Paul and the other New Testament writers are combating two errors in relation to the law, in reference to the law. Two errors that we're always pulled towards, one direction or the other, in reference to the law. This law that we have written on our hearts, how do we relate to it? And there are two errors. I want to talk about them today and lay them out a little bit for you. The first of these is legalism, and the second is antinomianism. And if you have a little sheet there, I provided the outline for you. That's my two points, legalism and antinomianism, those two errors. Uh, legalism, let's begin there. Legalism is the belief that keeping the law can save you. Paul argues that no one is righteous, not even one. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile or what have you. People are sinners. Yet, people consistently believe that the reason that God will accept them if he does and will allow them into heaven is that they're a pretty good person. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. You ask most anybody, and even some of us here today, might answer the question in that way. Why should you get into heaven? Why should God accept you? A lot of people just will naturally say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not a bad person. You know, my goods, I do have some faults. I'm not perfect, but my goods outweigh my bads. Do you think that you're a pretty good person? Well, it all depends on who you compare yourself to, doesn't it? I'm much better than some people I know, and I like to look at them, compare myself to them. And others I don't like to stand close to because they're much better than I am. They make me feel guilty. But when it comes to Judgment Day, the only standard by which we will be judged is God and his holiness. 
It's not going to be how we stack up with everybody else in the, in the rest of the world. And in reference to God, compared to his perfect holiness, we're not a good person. And that's the only comparison that matters. And if we think that our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, uh, the problem is, with this type of thinking, is that your deeds are not going to be judged independent of you as a person. I'm going to illustrate with this glass of water here. Suppose I have in this glass of water the purest, high-quality H2O. You know, it's unadulterated, absolutely pure. Nothing but hydrogen and oxygen in their specific parts. And I took and added just one drop of the most potent poison on earth to that. Would you drink it? Of course you would. Even though it's just the tiniest little bit of this potent poison, it has tainted the entire glass. Even if you were to add more water to it, adding more water to it will just taint the water that you add to it. Now, when it comes to sin, even one sin, it taints your whole self. When you sin one time, you have become unclean, impure, unrighteous. And even though you might want to add some good works to it to kind of dilute the bad stuff, you're still tainted as a person. And who are we kidding? We don't have only one drop of sin in us. We sin every day. We're tainted. We're, we're impure. No one is perfect, of course. Now, legalism is the idea that if I'm good enough, God will accept me. I can keep the law, and you should keep the law, and, and that's how you will be judged at the end, and, and your goods should outweigh your bads. But keeping the law will never merit salvation because we're tainted. We're sinners. Every religion in the world, besides Christianity, teaches legalism. You can look at them all. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, and the list goes on. All of them tell you that what you need to do to achieve paradise or nirvana or oneness with the universe or self-actualization or whatever the desired end might be, they tell you, you follow the rules, you follow this path, you uh, adopt these disciplines in your, in your life, then you will achieve the desired end. Christianity does not work that way. Christianity is grace-based. It's not legal-based. Christianity says that you cannot because you have not followed the rules, you, you can't keep the disciplines perfectly enough. You can't follow the path faithfully enough. You're unclean, you're impure, you're unrighteous. Christianity says that someone else has done it for you. Someone else came and kept the law perfectly on your behalf, in your place. Christianity says that someone came and died to pay the penalty for the sins that you committed so that you might be cleansed and forgiven. 
And of course, this someone is Jesus Christ that we're talking about here. So I said Christianity is not based on legalism. In a way, it is, actually. And I, just listen to what I'm saying here before you call me a heretic. It's not your obedience to the law that saves you. It's Christ's obedience to the law. You've heard the saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? And, and, and what it means is that you might enjoy a free lunch, but it's not just free. Someone has paid for it. You know, whether you're a, a child at a public school who is from a low-income family and, and taxpayer money is used to provide a meal for you, or even if you go out for, somebody gives you a coupon for a free lunch, someone is paying for that. Maybe it's the restaurant that's paid for it. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Someone has paid for it. And we talk about salvation being free. It's free to you, like the children who get a free lunch. That meal is free to them, but someone has paid for it. Salvation is free to us, but Christ has paid for it. Christ has secured it for us. He is the one that's provided for it, for, provided it for us. To believers, salvation is freely given because it has been paid for by Jesus Christ. Now, how do we, let's talk about how we respond to, to this. The appropriate response to this understanding is that we should repent and believe, repentance and faith. It's recognizing that you are unrighteous, that you are tainted, that you cannot be saved by your own merit, and you're coming to Jesus Christ and, and asking him to apply his saving work to your soul, to apply what he has done to your account, to credit you with the righteousness that only can come by faith in Christ. And when a person repents and puts their trust in Christ's work on their behalf for salvation, Paul says that person has died to the law through the body of Christ, verse 4. We've died to the law through the body of Christ. And in verses 1 through 3, he gives us this illustration about marriage. If, uh, if, if one of the spouses in a, in a marriage dies, then the law is no longer binding them to one another. The, the person who is alive is free to remarry. Their obligation to one another is over, right? The dead spouse cannot be obligated to the living spouse because they're dead and they're in another realm altogether. The living spouse is free to marry someone else, no longer bound to their deceased spouse. See, the categories for both spouses has changed. And that's what Paul is saying there in verses 1 through 3. We see this played out in, in, in life is what he's saying. But the same way is true of a believer. A believer is dead to the law. The law is no longer the believer's spouse. The law is no longer the believer's spouse. Now what kind of spouse is the law? When I think of the law as a spouse, I think of some guy, you know, in a wife beater and a cigarette, and he's always condemning you. you you're a terrible spouse. You're, you're lousy. You don't live up to the standards. You don't do right. And he's right. You know, it's one thing to be criticized, and, and maybe you have an argument that maybe their, their criticisms aren't right, but when someone criticizes you and is right and constantly does it and constantly is pointing out your, that's hard. That's hard. And that's what the law does. 
when you're married to the law and you're trying to live up to it, it will only point out to you how much you fail, how far you fall short. It will always condemn you. It can't save you. But, through Christ, we are free from that mean old spouse, the law. We've been delivered from the law. That's what Paul means in verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now Paul's going to elaborate on the coming verses, so I'm not going to go into that in detail, but the law just condemns us and, and even actually stirs up sin in us. That's what Paul talks about. And you see this with kids. If you, you want to make sure a kid... Uh, you know, actually does something wrong, forbid them to do it. <laughs> they will go and do exactly, because they want to know exactly what it's like to do it. But thanks be to God, we as believers have died to the law through the death of Christ. Believers have a new status. We're in a new category. We're no longer under the law, we're under grace. We're no longer under the condemning eye of the law, but are under the saving grace of Christ. Verse 6 now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Legalism, trying to follow the law to earn God's favor, is a dead end. It's the wrong path to follow. And that's the first error. The second error is this, and we'll spend much less time on this one because we actually looked at it in chapter 6. That's what Paul was addressing there. Should we just continue to sin so that grace may abound? No, may it never be. What a ghastly thought, as we said before. Antinomianism is the second error. The word comes from the Latin anti, which of course means against, and nomos, which means law. So antinomianism is being against the law. What he's talking about in chapter 6, uh, I'm, if, if God's going to just love me in spite of all my sinfulness, if he's going to accept me in spite of all my sinfulness, I can keep on sinning. The sins don't really matter. And I'm free to do whatever I want to. I've got, uh, I've got fire insurance for the future. I can live and not be in fear of hell, do whatever I want to do, uh, go and sin as much as I want to sin. Or, there, there are variations on this, some people believe that Christians aren't obligated to the law at all, that they're free from the law as a guide even for their lives. The only law is the law of love. And usually you see that in reference to the Ten Commandments, they'll throw out the ones that they can throw about. Usually the Fourth Commandment is the first one to go. The, the honor the Sabbath day. Well, that's no longer binding because we're not under law anymore. We don't have to honor the Sabbath day. We're free from that. And you can go down the list and say the same thing to some degree about all of them. That's antinomianism. They're against the law. How do they get to that point? How, how do you adopt that kind of thinking? Why is Paul spending time talking about this? It's because if you follow Paul's logic and, and what I've been explaining, you might come to that conclusion when he says that we're no longer under the law. We've died in the law. We're under grace now. The law is no longer our spouse. We are free from our obligation to the law. Well, that's not so fast, my friends. Look at verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you, have also, you also have died to the law 
through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we, we may bear fruit for God. Yes, the believer has died to the law, but the believer got remarried to Christ. You have a new master. Now you belong to another, to the one who has been raised from the dead. And he tells us why. We are united to Christ in order that we may bear fruit to God. And what is that fruit? Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, good deeds. All these things God has prepared in advance for us to do. He, is, he, he has given us his grace so that we can do his works and bear fruit for him. Now, where the law was the worst kind of condemning spouse, Jesus Christ is the perfect spouse. Forgiving, nourishing, providing, cherishing. How could we be so ungrateful as to run back to the very things from which he has freed us? You know, Christ has freed us from the curse, from the misery of the law. How would we run, it, run back to it? Now, think about the free lunch again, briefly. Suppose as a faithful taxpayer, uh, you went to your local school cafeteria and you saw all the children getting a free lunch simply going through the line, getting a plate full of food and dumping it in the garbage. They didn't want the food, they just threw it away and wasted it. Now, wouldn't you be angry at that? We're all angry at government waste, aren't we? <laughs> because it's our, our hard-earned money that we've put into it. And it's being thrown aside. Well, that would be the same thing. Antinomianism is the same thing. Christ has freed us from the law. I mean, freed us from the law, freed us from sin and its tyranny. He has rescued us. He's provided for us. We shouldn't take the gift and throw it aside so that we can run back to the very things from which he's freed us. We should think about how can we be grateful to the Lord for all that he's done for us. Wouldn't you love it if all the children who got free lunches sent you a thank you note? Thank you for being a faithful taxpayer so that I can eat. We would appreciate that, wouldn't we? We want to see the children enjoying food. We don't give those gifts begrudgingly, and neither has Christ. But gratitude is appropriate. Look at verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Some people want to stop there. Antinomians want to stop there. Released from the law to do whatever we want to do, they say. But the sentence doesn't stop there. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve. We serve. The believer has a new spouse. They are in a covenant relationship with the Lord. He has forgiven them, cleansed them, and provides for them. He has freed them from the condemnation of the law. He dwells in us, believers, by the Spirit. It's not an opportunity to be ungrateful but to serve the loving Savior. Not in the old way of the written code. Not by just checking off the list. I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. But in the new way of the Spirit. The Lord dwells with us. We have a relationship with Him. He is with us. And we walk in His path in fellowship with Him. We'll develop that more later. But it's not to follow our fleshly desires, as we get to in Romans chapter 8 but to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit who dwells in believers, and he always leads us according to the law. You know, if we want to know how to please the Lord, the Spirit's not going to 
tell us to do something that, is, that has been forbidden in Scripture. That doesn't happen. He's going to lead us down that path. Give you the Heidelberg Catechism in conclusion. Love these first two questions of the Heidelberg Catechism. Give us an illustration of, of our attitude and what it should be. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my, hand without the will, from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Do you know what he's talking about there? Is that your experience? And look at the second question. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. The law points that out to you. The law shows you that you're a sinner. And sin and misery, they go together. Look at second. How, am I, how I am set free from all my sins and misery? Through Christ, you're set free from sin and misery. Sin and misery go together. All your misery is caused by your sins and the sins of others. Third, and this gets to our motivation and, and against antinomianism, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. How are we to, you know, do we appreciate the deliverance that we've been given? Are we grateful? If so, then we should walk in God's paths. Not just because we're trying to earn his favor, but because we have his favor. How can we please this one who loves us so greatly, who has demonstrated it by laying down his very life for us? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to know our relationship with the law. Help us not to think with a legalistic mindset or an antinomian mindset. But Lord, we pray that we would be spirit-led believers in you who are daily renewed by the Spirit, by faith in Christ, who rehearse the good news to ourselves and worship and live out of that worship. Lord, we pray that you would transform us so that we would be better examples than we are to the world around us. Lord, we fail and we, we feel guilty because we haven't provided the good example to those around us because of our antinomianism or our legalism. Lord, help us to walk in the way of the gospel and be a bright and shining light in the world in which we move. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.